Hello and welcome to episode 14 of No Blueprint featuring Sage Paul. This is our finale episode of season one of No Blueprint. Sage Paul is a designer and she is the founding artistic director of Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, but she is also an award winner from the Design Exchange RBC Emerging Designer Award. Congratulations on that. Sage Paul, thank you so much for joining us today on this No Blueprint series. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> awesome. So first, I'd like to, to pay homage. I reside here on the traditional territory of the Algonquin people. I, I want to thank the creator for all things to align, for us to connect, for us to be here today. I'm, I'm full of gratitude for that. And I also want to thank our audience for tuning in, for their continued support on our entire No Blueprint series. This is episode 14. That means that's 14 weeks. Um, it's been a journey, and I just want to thank our audience for joining us on this ride. And last but not least, you know, I want to thank our guest, Sage Paul, for taking your time out of your day, for being here. I know how busy life is, and uh, I just want to make sure that you understand how much full of gratitude I am for your presence and to be part of this No Blueprint legacy. So thank you again for being here today. Mm, thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much for having me, and I'm, I'm really happy and grateful also. Thank you. So first, I'd like to start us off just by asking and checking in with you. How are you doing through these COVID times personally? Oh, um, through these COVID times personally, it's, it's challenging. You know, day, days, um, they're up and down. And some days there's extreme loneliness. And some days um, I'm just happy to be at home. And most days, every day, I'm just grateful that I am okay. Um, you know, I, I feel like I have a lot of um i have a lot of i think privilege so i i feel very fortunate that you know i'm not that i'm here in a safe house and i'm here with my pets and i have really incredible um you know people in my life that we just really take care of each other and i'm just i'm so grateful for that um because things are unknown like it's so it's so crazy. It's unknown and we don't know what's going to happen in a month, in two days, next year. Um, so I, I, that's kind of how I'm doing. I don't really know how I'm doing, but I'm, I'm, riding, I'm riding the wave. <laughs> Appreciate that. I think a lot of us are riding that wave, trying to figure things out and trying to manage through these COVID times. It's, it's definitely uh, unique, historical at the same time. And a lot of us have to pivot. I'm curious on another note, on a positive note, I see that you're blinged out today. Can you share with us a little bit? Describe for us what are you wearing today? Yeah, these okay. So the earrings are Indie City. They are the gold mirrored uh, medicine flowers that they have on their websites. Um, I have two pairs of them because <laughs> nice. I love them so much. <laughs> um, and the shirt is from the Simons collaboration that Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto did with Simons and eight designers. And this one is specifically by an artist named uh, Carolyn Monet. She's a, a multidisciplinary artist based in Montreal and Algonquin. And this is specifically based on a floral design. And I just love how it goes into like, her, it's based on this floral design from her family, but then eventually it, it's, she's, I guess, um, abstracted it into this very geographic print that almost looks like a computer board, which thinks about like, makes me think about connecting and how you connect with people. So when we think about how florals connect with our family, but then also our 
the internet's allowing us to connect. Like I just feel like there's just deep connections and I just, I love wearing it. I love that. Yeah. I love that description. <laughs> and I love how you connect our design to our relationship to the land. I'm really excited to get into some of that, some of that discourse later on in this, in this episode. But I wanted you to help take us back. Where are you from and where are your parents from? Yeah. Um, where am I from? I'm born and raised in Toronto. Um, I grew up in Gabriel Dumont, which is a native housing complex here in the city. My dad is Dennis uh, uh English River First Nation, where all of my, my dad's family is from. And we go back there regularly and um, have been very important parts of my life. Uh, my mom is fourth generation Canadian. Um, I don't know what that means. Uh, so I, like I was telling you how I identify as being urban Dene because I was really raised in, in the culture here in Toronto. So most of what I was raised around was very Ojibwe, but of course my dad, and when we went back to Pachinac where my reserve is, like I would learn about Dene traditions. But most of the ceremony I went to was here, which means I was on Anishinaabe territory. Um, and I didn't really learn too much about my mom's side. So I just, she's fourth generation Canadian. I know that there's Hungarian and Scottish and Irish, I think, or British um, <laughs> on that side. Uh, and she's, um, my parents met here. They met, um, my dad was at, my mom and dad, they were both at art school, OCAD and New York University. And they had us and, um, yeah, we grew up in Gabriel Dumont and I've been living here ever since. And I've always like, like growing up in the city as an indigenous person, there's always like this uh, give and take of, of my indigeneity, I find, because on a day to day basis, you know, I, I go to a Starbucks and there's like, you know, it's just mainstream culture and I'm surrounded by that. Like just it's, I find it really, it's just flat, you know, it's just what, it's what capitalism is feeding us. Um, but I find more, like I feel a sense of wholeness in um, knowing where I come from and what my parents have taught me, what my community has taught me, what fashion teaches me. And I think that gives me a sense of grounding and purpose to be able to just wake up. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So that's, I think that's, how I feel as an urban Dene woman. You know, I want to go into that topic of indigeneity a little bit. Um, when did you start learning about your indigeneity and how that interconnects with your identity? I know a little bit of your background just from some of the interviews you've done that you grew up in an environment that was surrounded by art and textiles and fashion. And so I'm curious when you started to really hone in on your indigeneity and how that's directly interconnected with with your identity um i just grew up with it yeah it was just a part of my life growing up um so that's just kind of how i knew to do fashion and knew to work with various crafts and you know the stories that were taught like you know we're taught creation stories when we like those are the kind of stories that i was taught when i was little i mean of course we watched disney and whatever but you know we still had uh um you know a part, our culture was a big part of my life growing up so it was just who who i was um i i found when i went to college is when um that's when I really started to see like, I guess my career 
in terms of my culture and how they are not separate things. Um, I didn't have to go into a mainstream world or a mainstream culture and stop being native when I get to that door. And I really struggled with that when I was in school because I didn't really know how I would fit in. And um, when I started working at Imaginative is how I, is when I started seeing artists who were working in more mainstream mediums like film and how um, you were still able to express our indigeneity, you know, our culture, the stories that we heard when we were young, but through these kinds of modern um, mediums. And I think that's kind of what gave me the, the insights to really look at fashion in a new way. Because I mean, I was all, always doing indigenous fashion um, since I was a kid, right? Like that's just right. what I was, that's just what I was doing because that's who I was, but I didn't really make that connection in terms of like, this is, I don't have to stop being, stop being who I am to, to make a living. You know, I can be who I am and um, make a living from it. Wow. Yeah. I think that's extremely powerful to, to be aware of that you don't have to stop being who you are to make a living. Um, and I asked that question about when you started learning about your indigeneity in the context that personally, I didn't fully understand what that meant until like in my later days when I worked for the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. And I started to be exposed to that part of our history and how it directly influenced my, my grandparents' life. I mean, I technically grew up, um, um, you know, my indigeneity being part of my life, um, having those relationships with my relatives. But that idea of, you know, when, when understanding our history and our background really started to become that empowerment in the work that we do. And I think I can totally relate to you when you say, you know, you don't have to stop being who you are to make a living. And I think that crossroads of having that awareness is such a, an important facet in anybody's life journey and through this you know world society that we're living in because i think it's so significant that when we empower ourselves through our indigeneity and integrate that into our daily lives and into our work and into our everyday routines i think that helps us kind of revitalize our communities and revitalize the resurgence of the indigenization of this country and so yeah. i'm curious you know, to hear a little bit of your education story. I know you graduated from George Brown College from the Fashion Design and Techniques Program. So share with us how, you know, a young girl coming out of high school, what compelled you to go into fashion <laughs> design at George Brown, George Brown College? <laughs> um, I didn't know what I wanted to do out of high school. And I took a year off of high school. Um, I just was like... I like fashion, I like making, and I've always made clothing all my life. Like it's always just been a part of my life. So I just was like, I guess I may as well do that. I, you know, I was 19 years old and um, there was nothing specific that compelled me. It just felt like something, like it was just, it seemed like a logical step where I'm like, I like to do this. All right, let's go check it out. Um, I did want to go to call our university and I wasn't able to go to university. So I kind of had to make the decision to go to a college program. Um, yeah. It, it was a time where I was just kind of making decisions because I knew I had to. Right. <laughs> and when I look back, I don't think there's, there's, any, there's no rush. Um, I'm happy that I did go to, go to college and I learned a lot and it was a very important time 
in my life. But I like if I'd gone back to school now, maybe I would have been able to retain more information and really um, think about the information that I was digesting as opposed to just allowing it to happen to me. Mm. Yeah. No, I understand that. I mean, I, I've gone to university. I haven't finished yet only for the reason that I haven't found anything that really connected um, with, you know, my journey and what I wanted to accomplish in life and how that's interconnected with the resurgence of our people and helping mm. make this country a better place. I haven't found anything that necessarily fit for me yet. Um, I do plan on actually uh, taking university classes at First Nation University in, in oh, cool. Regina, finish my university education out there. At least it's graduating from one of our own institutions in a way. Um, yeah. so that's kind of um, an important facet. But I bring it up because, you know, there's a lot of young people that are navigating their journey in school, trying to figure out what it is they wanted to do, um, you know, not knowing if they should go to school. Is it, you know, going to work against them? And, you know, I had a really good conversation with Chris Derrickson, uh, chief of West Bank First Nation, and we talked about his education career a little bit and how mm -hmm. we can help our young people equip themselves and have the awareness to help make the education system work for them. So is there any like major takeaways maybe that you can share on your experience uh, graduating from George Brown College? Um. You know, I really don't totally believe in institutional education and I and I feel like if people are ready and they want to go to school and for me, I went specifically to learn a trade um, and, you know, the trade of fashion is hands on. But what I learned in school, um, I was kind of finessing what I had already learned growing up. Um, and I think there's a there's very important parts of an institution that allow you to be with other peers who are interested in the same things. Um, you really get the time to focus on these things that you want to study and, um, and give that critical um, understanding of what you want to study. Um, but I don't think we always have to go in the way of institutional learning. I find hands-on learning to be very important. Um, and on the, on the land, there's a, um, like Deninayo, they do uh, high tanning, you know, and these, these are on the land learning and you learn so many skills from that, like, and, um, you know, there's science in the way that a brain enzyme tans the hide, like that's science. And like the, like the way that the process that you have to actually cure the hide is, um, it's all educational. You learn how to live off the land and um, I think that is that provides a lot of insight for a, a young person, any person to understand the world and how we are going to work within the world. And when we're thinking about institution in terms of creating that space for oneself, um, you know, I really wish I had done that. When I was in school, I just went and just took in the information, but there really, I didn't feel at the time that there was a place for me um, and the way that I understood fashion. It was very different. Um, it was a very a different time. You know, that was, uh, I can't remember how long ago that was. <laughs> that must have been like uh, over 50, it was over 15 years, maybe 20 years ago. I can't remember now. Yeah. Almost 20. Yeah. Anyway, it was a very, very long time ago. And the system was very different at that time. I think there's a lot more resources now available to Indigenous students. I think, um, there's, the resources are very important to, to take advantage of if you want to go to school. Um, 
because there there is a lot of benefit to having just that knowledge and understanding of how how these different industries and systems are working but i i do i i say that with caution because i don't want I would hate for a young person to feel like what they learn on their land, on their reserve, in their community. And, and Gabriel Dumont is, you know, not is lesser than, um, because the knowledge that you learn in those places are so relevant and so important. And in fact, the institution, those educational institutions, can learn more from those young people coming from those places. So I think it's a nice balance. And and school is very important. Staying school, guys, <laughs> and, and make sure to always challenge yourself to learn, and you know, always bring something out of um, out from what you want to do with life. But um, there are many, many different places you can find an education. Hundred percent. I, I appreciate you sharing that, and I think it's really interesting to hear you share because I think just in some of the things that you were discussing, I think it helps provide that awareness for young people who are listening to this to kind of be prepared for whatever journey or decision they want to make. And I think it's just really helpful to empower our young people to let them know that your life experience and your relationship to the land is an education. Your relationship to the land and your life experience is value and it can help you pursue whatever it is that you want to pursue in your life. I think that's very important to understand. So I appreciate you sharing that and speaking on, you know, lightly touching on colonization indirectly in a way. Um, you are one of the co-founders of Setsune and in a way that was your form of saying fuck colonialism. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about what the creation story of how that came to be? Um, yeah, it was with, I, you know, I was at a time in my life when I wanted to explore fashion more and I, and I actually had applied for a grant with my sister to work on a project to do high tanning. And they were like, well, I, we think, you know, more people will benefit from this and uh, you invite more community into it. I was like, okay, so we'll make this more of a community thing. Um, so we brought together um, people from our community to be able to build this idea of, you know, it's basically, it, was, it wasn't on the land learning because we were still in Toronto, but it was a space for us to be able to learn practices and skills and very, various craft things that, um, that we wouldn't have learned otherwise. The spaces were very welcoming to uh, especially young Indigenous mothers, which was a very important part of it. We wanted to create these spaces where um, they were able to create work, but they were still care for their children. And um, we were still able to carry on these, these practices. Uh, yeah, so that's why it happened. Super significant to be creating a space where, you know, parents or mothers can come in and bring their children to share that space. I think that's a significant point. And so in that journey of Setsune, um, the Indigenous Fashion Incubator, and this was back 2014 is when it was founded? Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the incredible things that came out of that was the IKEA for the first time co-created a line with local social entrepreneurs. Um, you created, um, tell us a little bit about that because I'm, I could easily go into the excitement of for the first time, IKEA Canada, uh, working with incredible indigenous social entrepreneurs, share with us a little bit about how that came to be and what it was about. 
Yeah, it was, um, where do I start? Wow, that feels like so long ago. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, so Ikea had this project where they were working, and it was around the world, and I think it first started in um, Sweden, and they were specifically working with a local social enterprise um, initiative there in Sweden that was supporting women refugees. And by, so that by supporting them, what they were doing was having a group of uh, women come to all come together to work, to build a collection of textile, um, home goods, um, kitchen wares. I don't know if they're all kitchen, but so that's where the project started. And they started branching that out to various countries where Ikea was. So in the States was in Texas, I believe. Um, I can't remember any of the others, um, but they were, reaching out to various groups in these countries to ask them about working on this project, which was built on um, doing like good for good for people and their and their communities. Um, so they reached out to Setsune uh, because we were, you know, we were one of the only groups that were publicly working with Indigenous women and publicly working through textiles and supporting um, Indigenous women and fostering Indigenous women in their work in uh, craft and fashion and textiles. Uh, so they approached us about doing that project, and um, we were, you know, it was really amazing. Of course, there's it's always concern because there's such a huge corporation like IKEA that comes to a group of women, and what does that look like? Um, so it was the first project, a large project like that, that I had. I'd, had always had all that I had done, but with a non-Indigenous partner. And so that kind of makes it challenging because there's different ways of working. And of course, IKEA, as much as they want to do the social work, I, you know, they still, at the end of the day, they still are a for-profit company and their goals are to make money. Um, whereas our goals was not to make money. Our goals is to build the sense of community. Um, so, you know, it was a very successful project and I definitely learned a lot from it. It was, uh, and it was just really exciting to be able to go through the conversations with Ikea and letting them know how we work as opposed to have, having us change how we work so we can fit within their guidelines. Um, but yeah, that's a bit about that project. Amazing. That was 2017, right? 2016. Sure. 2016. Yeah. And, you know, when you, when you bring up those points about collaborating with a non-Indigenous uh, corporation, what, what were some of those challenges that you were able to overcome during that, that experience? I think it really opened the doors to other non-Indigenous companies working with Indigenous people um, in a collaborative way and in a thoughtful yeah. way. Um, before we started the project, it was, we had a lot of conversation around the way that we were represented and the way, um, how we led the project. So we didn't want to just go in and complete one of their, you know, just be hired by them. Um, we really wanted to be uh, partners in how that project was led and carried out. Um, so that was, I guess, the first time for me when I was able to just have those conversations to not to just be able to go in and say, well, this is what I, we would like to consider how to do the project as opposed to going into the project and them telling us how to do it 
I don't know if that, if that makes sense, but a very slight difference of, you know, just having more agency over the project. And um, the more I continue to work um, and the work that I do, I, I do find that is, um, there's more willingness and openness to changing how people work. You know, we don't always have to work in these Western Euro kind of ways. There, we can, we can figure out a really cool Dene way to do something too. Nice. I like that. <laughs> yeah. That's really empowering. And, you know, two years later, you founded the Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto. So what inspired you to put that together? How did that come to be? Yeah, it was, um, well, just wanting to see Indigenous clothing on stage. So when I was in fashion school, um, the only time I saw Native people in any fashion things was either um, it was appropriated and you would see the whatever they're called the models with bikinis and the headdresses and then i would see that or you'd see the dollar store trinket things where our culture was commodified and if there was indigenous designers included in say toronto fashion week it would be uh, not it wouldn't happen very often and there wouldn't be there would be only one designer or two indigenous designers and there's so many, like I'm an indigenous designer and I'm like, I don't even, I don't even feel like I could compete at that. And why do I want to compete to have that one coveted spot at Toronto Fashion Week um, when there's so much happening? And does Toronto Fashion Week want me to be a stereotype when I want, when I present my collection there? Because mm. a lot of my stuff I do is, um, you know, pretty contemporary. It's very, con very conceptual and very contemporary. Some of it's very costumey. Um, so all of those years working through, like since graduating school up until that point of founding Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, um, was really watching the, you know, how I saw things happen outside of my community, how I was involved in all aspects of the community and what, you know, what I dreamt, you know, I, I wanted to, I had a dream. I wanted to see my, my work on, on a stage for fashion. Nice. Like, you know, when I was a kid, I watched fashion TV and just those, that idea was, you know, it was, you know, a very a dream as a child, but still I never ever thought that it could happen. And I never thought that I would be in a magazine like Elle or Flair. And then now here I am in those spaces. And I think it's because we've created those spaces for ourselves. You know, we created Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto and now um, dozens of designers are being represented regularly across the country. And there's always dozens and dozens more coming out of the woodwork. And I think a platform like Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto really allows us to create a space for all of those designers. Um, it's not just, you know, it's not one day a year when we're going to celebrate one, one Indigenous person. <laughs> Facts. Yeah. yeah. I love what you're saying because it's inspiring me and reminding me of the power of self-determination. I think as Indigenous people and the history of this country, you know, we've for a long time, we've been hoping for this country to change. We've been hoping for the people who are in those leadership positions to lead that change. And I think we're at a point right now where the resurgence of Indigenous people is stronger than ever. 
I think the fact that we have Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto, we got Vancouver Fashion Week, there's a Fashion Week happening in uh, Regina as well. I think that the fact that these are happening throughout Turtle Island is a significant um, testament to the resurgence of our people. And what I find the most fascinating and amazing about that is a lot of those spaces are, are led and run by women. And I think that's a huge testament to how our women are leading the way. That's the sign of the matriarch, the rise of the sacred feminine. Shout out to Andrea Menard. And so I think that what you're saying is so significant just to highlight that we need to create our own spaces. We don't have to wait for the change to come from higher ups, we can be that change. And that is a form of self-determination. We get to determine ourselves, what we want our communities to look like, be like, and feel like. So thank you, Sage Paul, for your contributions in creating those spaces and making that happen. I think that is extremely significant. So I wanted to definitely pay homage to you and how you've paved the way for a lot of our indigenous designers to have that spotlight, share their designs, create that safe space and put them on the map. I think that's super <laughs> incredible. I don't know if you wanted to reflect a little bit about that uh, topic of self-determination and what that might mean to you. Self-determination. You know, I don't really use that phrase in my in the work that I do um I do a lot of my work I I talk about it as um sovereignty um and resistance mm. for balance so that's really more the approach I take and I feel like this probably is very close to what self-determination is um like when I think about sovereignty sovereignty is about you know, having our own spaces that are governed by us and um, the way that we do that. Um, but resistance is important. And, you know, we live in a time when we are still oppressed and we're still dismissed or erased um, in the fashion industry, in all industries. And that's why it's important for us to take, to resist those mainstream platforms and create our own spaces. And that's what I mean by resistance and for balance, because, you know, it's not a, res a form of resistance for to be an anarchist. Mm. It's really more in terms of like resistance, for example, if, you know, if our communities are hungry and we can't afford a $20 head of lettuce because we're so far north, then it's like, how can we find food sovereignty? How are we growing our food? And resisting that system that is being put on us where we are told we have to buy this $20 head of lettuce but in fact we can go back to traditional ways and you know so like that idea of resistance and I so that's what I think about I don't know exactly what self-determination is <laughs> but I, I, I do know what sovereignty and resistance are and mm. that's that's definitely where I, I I allow to lead my work amazing I appreciate that. And I think about, um, you know, that topic of sovereignty. I love what you said in your TEDx talk you did actually recently this year. Was that back in February 2020? Um, it was this year or last year. I think it was, it was the end of last year. Okay. Yeah. So that, that TEDx talk, I think you made some incredible statements in there. And one of them that really resonated with me is when you said what we wear and what we eat are two of the most political decisions we make every day. And I found that when I was further doing more research, um, it's very much interconnected with an interview you did with Toronto Life. And I have a quote that I'd love to read. 
and it really helped change my paradigm and how I look at fashion. I think when you talked about how fashion is also innately political, it really started to pique my interest in, in really you know, deciphering how fashion has an impact. And one of the words you used um, in your CAFA interview was visual language. So I'm hoping that we can kind of interconnect all these pieces together. But I wanted to read this quote by Sage Paul during her interview on Toronto Life. And she says, by rejecting the clothing that was forced upon young Native children and using the textiles and fashion expression that had once been stripped from us, we can find sovereignty and agency within our communities. If you don't mind, Sage Paul, please expound on what you meant by that. <laughs> um, well, oh man, we can go into the history of clothing right now. And the word fashion is mostly known to have been originated in Western Europe. And um, that's because that is from a time when the kings and queens were establishing fashion as this hierarchy to maintain, maintain their status um, and, and to, for capitalism so they can make money. So this is how fashion became its thing. And so fashion then becomes this tool of control um, or control or of leadership, whatever you can use, you can use fashion in very powerful ways, um, which, I, which is why I think it makes it innately political. You can put someone in a uniform and suddenly they are that role that mm. you see, an, um, an army person or a chef. Um, so you see what this world these, these people are wearing, but then you can also have governments and states that control what people are wearing specifically to keep them oppressed. Um, our people were uh, forced to wear a very specific kind of clothing. They were, it was outlawed to wear our traditional clothing, which wasn't even called fashion. It was called dress. Mm. Um, so it was already, the, even the way the English language separated it from, like here, fashion is like the real thing. And then yours is traditional dress. It's not actually fashion. So they're already separating us from being a part of this world that they've created around fashion. Meanwhile, we already have this world that we have in, in fashion. So we have all of these um, indigenous people who are not allowed to wear, we're not allowed to wear our own clothing. They're being forced to wear these like clothing, go to residential school where, um, you know, they were forced to wear clothing and materials. I don't even know what kind of, it was probably like uh, wool or something that was very uncomfortable when we were right. used to wearing something very different. Um, and then never mind, you're forced to cut your hair, you're, you were pulled away from your families. Um, and that continued, right? And um, you, we still live in that world today where like clothing is still a very political decision in that um, fast fashion, you, it becomes an accessible thing where all these companies like who are at the top um, have created these poor fashions and are like cheap fashion, not poor, but they, they create this cheap fashion for the mainstream to be able to buy every week. You know, you can buy something new every week, $5, $10 for a shirt. And so those capitalists are still making money off of poor people or disenfranchised people. Um, and meanwhile, our communities still stay poor. So it's still like another way of control, I think, um, in the way that fast fashion controls us. And um, 
you know, we have lost that sense of value because we don't see it as fashion. We don't see that craft as being fashion. Um, but I think there's a lot of opportunity to understand that communication of fashion and that language in fashion. And I think once we understand that language and value that language, it really can transform how we understand what we choose to put on our body. You know, mm -hmm. do I choose to support, you know, my sister or do I choose to support an industry that exploits labor overseas? And um, so how am I making those decisions? And it's, you know, like I said, or in the quote too, with fat food, like it's very hard. I mean, we need food to survive, right? Absolutely. And, but yet it's still not accessible for many people or people are banned from hunting on their own land. Mm. Um, and the same thing goes for fashion. Like we do need clothing to survive. We do. I mean, we, especially in Canada, right? We need it. And when you go and you see that Inuits are no longer al allowed to be a part of the economy by selling fur, um, that really interferes with their livelihood. Um, they can only sell it for traditional ways. But meanwhile, like a lot of their economy and their ability to buy a $50 head of lettuce is for the fur that they can sell. So they actually need to be a part of the economy. But because the international, I don't know what law, but some international law has said that they cannot sell their furs commercially. And that directly impacts their livelihood because of the things of that have been stripped away on other levels. So I think by, that's why I think clothing is important. We, we have the power to make the decisions for what we're going to buy and who we're going to buy it from and what that story is behind the clothing. Like I feel more like when I wear fur, I, I wear it because I know where it came from and I know, you know, either it's vintage or I, you know, I found it in a cool shop. If I was in Ottawa shopping and I found this really cool vintage jacket and I'm like, yes, I really love it. I know it's vintage and you know, it's not, I'm not contributing to the mass murder of animals mm. or if I'm buying, you know, beautiful piece of fur um, from, you know, family up North that was hunting beaver. And I'm supporting that family. And so there's that sense, like, how are we contributing to our, our economy and our local economy and especially our, our, our community and our families? I think it's so important. So um, I don't know if that directly kind of addresses what, what you've asked, but it is you. Yeah, you've definitely asked a lot. Yeah, <laughs> in that I, I, I appreciate that. And, and honestly, I think our listeners are very woke to hearing this type of discourse. I think our listeners really, I think, are hungry for this type of understanding. And if it wasn't for you and the work that you're doing in the fashion world and through these interviews to articulate that type of history and understanding, I think we'd be missing that in some fact, uh, some facets. Mm -hmm. Like it totally made me feel uncomfortable in a way. I'm like, what am I wearing? And like, <laughs> what does what does this represent? I had to like look up the history of a hoodie. What is the history? I started doing these type of things. Awesome. Because, yeah, Exactly. And because of you, Sage Paul, it changed my paradigm. And I just wanted to ask you those questions because I think they're so significant. And I think they're also things that we take for granted. I mean, we just go to fast fashion because it's readily and, and easily accessible. And we don't even really think about that kind of thing. So the mm -hmm. fact that you were able to put those on such public platforms to allow uh, the readers and your fans and the audience to be able to to learn about that 
is changing my paradigm and I'm sure it's changing others. I think that's so amazing. So thank you again for the work that you're doing. And, you know, talking about that, I've already kind of um, got excited about the apparel that you're wearing and you briefly touched on how it was, it came from, you know, that Simon's um, event that took place that was directly connected to uh, the work that you've been doing with indigenous fashion week Toronto. And so yeah. I'm really uh, interested to hear, you know, how that partnership came to be. How did that manifest? And what was that experience like for you? Yeah, it was, um, where did it start? I was on a panel for The Kit, which is a local paper here in Toronto, uh, fashion lifestyle kind of stuff mostly. And they brought together a group of people from the industry to be a part of this panel called The Future of Canadian Fashion. And I was on that panel along with a number of other women in um, the fashion industry, um, but also included uh, Osien, uh, who was the women's buyer at Simon's. And her and I were having conversation about our beliefs, basically what our beliefs and our values were around the fashion industry. You know, the way that the fashion industry uh, in Canada is not, doesn't really support designers here at you know, the local level, you know, we always go overseas, uh, the way that craft is not valued, um, and how, you know, platforms like Simon's, how can they support Indigenous designers, for example, and we're like, well, okay, we both have the, the, the resources to be able to, to do something about that. Uh, so that's, in short form, that's kind of how that came about. <laughs> and uh, so we said, okay, let's do it. And we had you know, a number of meetings and really thought out what this project is going to look like. And we knew we wanted to feature, um, well, when it had to be realistic, it's our first time working together. So we want to um, make sure we can feature the, the diversity of all of the nation, Indigenous nations across the country, um, but in a way that, you know, producing a collection takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of money. Um, so if we had, for example, if we had all of our designers all producing all new clothing, it would have, I, I don't think it would have been as successful because um, it's a, that would be a major, major endeavor to, to do that. Even just creating one design with a number of sizes, is a, it's, it's a big project to do that. So Simon's designed the, pro, designed the collection um, and basically created a blank template that they mm. knew that their, uh, their customers would love. Um, and we helped go through that process to kind of approve that we would be happy with it too. Nice. And then we approached eight designers who are in, in working in fashion and craft and textiles to help to embellish these garments. So they had free reign over how, what they wanted to do and what their designs were going to be and, um, you know, make sure that they felt like they were represented and uh, that it was true to who they were as designers, as individual people. And uh, yeah, like a year later, it was launched. <laughs> it's incredible. Like, I hope our listeners are picking this up because not only have you helped indigenize Simons, you helped indigenize Ikea, you know, you helped indigenize Toronto, and you're a trailblazer in all of these amazing um, spaces that you've created for indigenous designers to showcase what they love about um, fashion and what they love about their culture and themselves. I think that's so significant. So I hope our listeners are picking that up because the Simons collection also sold out. There was a bunch of <laughs> items that sold out off the rack. So I wanted to ask you on that note, what does that say about the demand of indigenous fashion? 
it, there is a really big demand, you know, okay, this is one thing. So when I'm starting relationships with people and people want to work with indigenous designers and everyone's always wants to be the savior. They're always like, well, how can we help indigenous designers? You know, we can help them by doing this marketing and really get them exposure. And I'm like indigenous designers, a, a lot of indigenous designers are at a place where they don't need marketing. <laughs> um, a lot of people, a lot of designers and um, craft makers um, can barely keep up with the demands mm. of, of the work that they're creating. Um, Cause you know, they're, people are interested people like not only are we supporting each other as um, indigenous people, but I find people just in general want to wear indigenous made stuff because it's cool. And I think by being able to purchase something from indigenous people, you're not going to appropriate. So you're not going to wear anything that's ceremonial and you're supporting a local indigenous economy. I think it's very important for people to know who their designers are uh, because, uh, of course, there's always issues around authenticity, and I think it's very, very important to ask, who's the designer? Where are they from? And I don't think people will withhold that information if, um, um, you know, if they were an Indigenous designer. Uh, so, yeah, I think the demand is, is there, and I feel like it's growing, and I work very hard to make sure that this isn't just a phase I don't think it is a phase. I mean, people have been interested in indigenous culture since colonization, right? <laughs> right? They've been, they've been taking <laughs> our, our cool stuff since they got here. So yeah. I think it's like about time for us to be able to celebrate that and share that. And I, of course there needs to be boundaries on what we can and cannot share. But if we are the ones leading that conversation, I think we can do it in a good way. And our, you know, our communities will, um, will grow from that and and we get to see more ourself, more of ourselves and um, reflected through whatever it is marketing TV fashion everything yeah. totally I I love what you said and I think you know that that whole notion of buying from indigenous uh, and how that is a safe way to go about purchasing fashion that we all love and adore I think is a great path to take and not only are you um, purchasing something authentic, but you're also investing into the indigenous economy. And I think that's a really important point to make in the resurgence and revitalizing our communities. I think buying indigenous is very significant and an important aspect when you are looking for fashion, etc. So I love this conversation. You know, we've talked about fast fashion, we've talked about slow fashion. We've talked about all of the amazing accomplishments you've done. How do you balance this work and balance your own career as a designer? Like, what does that balance look like for Sage Paul? How do you maintain that positive mental health moving forward? Yeah, it's, it's very challenging. <laughs> I, I do have to schedule my time and uh, make sure that I'm not overextending myself. And I do make sure to schedule time specifically to be creative. I really feel like I cannot be the artistic director of Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto if I'm not creating my work myself and I don't understand the industry as a designer. Um, I don't get to do as much creative work as, as I would like right now because I am the artistic director at Indigenous Fashion Week Toronto. Uh, but I think that's a very, I, I feel like that is more important to do right now. And I still do my own work and I really, try to do more custom work and I love to explore what what I can do um, 
in terms of keeping my mental health, I just make sure to con- keep in touch with family and mm. um, just get, make sure I have time for myself and my family and take care of myself. Yeah, That's important. And speaking of you, Sage Paul, what are some of the designs that you're working on currently? Is there anything in the back burner that you got going on? What are some of the work that you got um, prepared for moving forward? I'm, I'm working on a dress that's like Mother Mary. So it's more of an art piece than it is ready to wear. Mm. Um, there's mile, what miles? I think it's mile 30 or kilometer 30. On my reserve, like we're we're at the end of the road in Saskatchewan, so you drive and like almost at the half, just past the halfway mark, I think, is there's a uh, a shrine with the Mother Virgin Mary, just in the middle of the bush, like, and as she's like there, like this entry point to to the forest, and it's they're all like black spruce, I think, and it's very dense. So it's it's northern Saskatchewan, so it's past all of the prairie stuff. So I always thought about that icon, that Mother Mary there. But then, like, my grandma would always, um, like, she was very religious. So whenever I speak about not being religious now, and I'm back home in, in Patchenat, then my cousins and my aunties would be like, your grandma would roll in her grave. Wow. <laughs> and so... <laughs> And that was just a part of her life. And, you know, I, I really, I love and respect people's beliefs and values. And I really make a point of myself not to speak about ceremony or um, rituals or, you know, whatever process, religion, prayers that people have, because I really believe that is so personal. Um, and so in moments like that, <laughs> I'm just like, that's cool. I mean, you know, believe in whatever you want to believe in. Um, but I just found that so, like for me, being able to connect with my grandma in such a way that um, that works for me um, and connecting with the land out there is to just kind of make this shrine through a dress. And I'm making it with a, a rawhide um, wow. a harness around it, but it's a, uh, that's the that's the big one being worked on right now. And then other than that, I'm doing like smaller kind of dresses here and there, but they're just ready to wear kind of nothing, right. nothing too exciting. <laughs> so what inspires the difference between art and ready to wear? Like, how do you decide what that is? Um, just from your own personal experience as a designer? Um, I think it's just personal opinion really i think the art world and the fashion world would have very definitive answers for you on that i think i believe you know expression is expression and what is considered good art that would make it into a gallery i really can't say i believe that we are you know all of creators are just artists in general i really love work that is conceptual that has purpose and meaning um and intent, like even if it's not, you know, if it's not a political message, then what is, how is this connection between these colors and how do colors connect to this idea? Let's say the idea is about food. You know, I wanna, I wanna talk about how much I love food. I, want, I wanna share a message about how important food is. And so like, how, what kind of colors do I bring into the clothing? Um, and I, for me, it's about 
the concept behind the work and the meaning behind the work. Um, yeah. I, I can appreciate that. No, I can it. appreciate it because as an artist, you know, I make music and I personally feel as though my music is more or less art than it is entertainment. And I think there's a huge mm. distinction between the two as well. Um, yeah. You know, I like to take my time to intentionally put a message into the song, intentionally create a piece of, of art that's telling a story of some sort that can maybe provide you with a, a message or some sort of guidance, or it's just sharing a personal life experience versus I'm going to go on stage and I'm going to say these words and hope that you have fun. That's not necessarily what <laughs> jives with me, but yeah. some people, you know, they have their own preferences. So I think, you know, when I ask that question, I can understand your response, how it's definitely personal preference because because I think, you know, the last album I put out was one of my favorite pieces of art, not necessarily entertainment. Um, so mm. I appreciate that answer. And, and I think it's, it's important to understand. And so one of the final questions I really wanted to hear from you, you know, we've talked a lot about these different industries and corporations and how you've collaborated with them. And a lot of these different spaces, you know, especially in our today's society, is a patriarch. It's male-dominated. So I'd love to hear from you, what can men do to help support our women um, in their work that they're doing, in, in both professionally and uh, individually? How can men support our women to shine and rise above? Oh, it's such a beautiful question. Um, I really find that really moving. Thank you. Even just thank you for asking. <laughs> um, yeah. I even even just asking is is helping, right? I, I think that is one thing men can do is like, how can I help you to to keep rising and get better? Um, yeah, there, there's these relationships I find between men and women. Um, there's a lot of power dynamics that that create a lot of friction in those relationships and that that desire to want to always like have this these places of power or just accepting the way that industries have always worked where men men lead and i think there's a lot of fear to let go of that power mm. and um yeah i just i just hope that those positions of power can just be open to having more people share those roles share those leaders those leadership roles as leadership roles and rather than having positions where you gain some sort of power. Um, what can men do? Just uh, keep loving, <laughs> treat, treat women with respect, <laughs> yet yeah. really listen, you know, just uh, give that time and space to listen and, um, and trust, yeah, trust that, you know, things will be done in a good way. Mm. But I really don't know. How can I speak to an entire um, gender of people? <laughs> I, I just believe that we all have to take care of each other. And Absolutely. We really have to support each other. Absolutely. I appreciate you sharing that. And, you know, one of the things we were briefly talking about before we went live was just, you know, some of my upbringing with the women that's been in my life. And we also talked about how a lot of these fashion weeks um, are led by women. And I think they're, you know, opening up that door and opening up that, that opportunity for other young women to see that, to see these women in positions of leadership and power, being boss babes and taking ownership and making decisions. <laughs> I, I honestly am super inspired by that. 
Um, I, I can't wait for the matriarch to replace the patriarch. And Sage <laughs> Paul, I want to thank you so much for being part of this No Blueprint. It's been an incredible time just to, to hear your insights and the journey that you've taken and the work that you've done in the, in the past that you've created for the next generation. I'm so grateful. I think this is such a, a fantastic way to wrap up our No Blueprint se uh, series, season one. Uh, Sage Paul, I'm, I'm full of gratitude. So thank you again for being here. I appreciate your time. And I, I hope that we cross paths at some point. Yeah, thank you so much, Justin. I'm so, I'm so grateful for the platform that you've created and like 14 episodes. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Masicho, for, for having me. Wash day and uh, all the best in your work to come. I know, I know we're in these COVID times and we got to pivot the Indigenous Fashion Week, but I'm sure that it's being worked in the back end. I'm sure your team is on it. And uh, I'm actually going to make sure I can do my best to be there this uh, the next time around. So thank you again. Well, I will say we are going online. Cool. So we'll be online um, towards the end of this year. Okay. Just follow follow our social media so you can get the official announcements of the dates and, and all of our program. And then after that, you can come to Toronto. Hopefully yes. when COVID has uh, <laughs> has made its, its, its path. <laughs> Facts. I appreciate that. Sage Paul, thank you again. I appreciate you. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to No Blueprint, 14 episodes deep. Um, for you to be, you know, tuning in every week. I'm, I'm so grateful to everybody. So again, wash day. Thank you so much, Sage Paul, for your time. And uh, let's stay connected. Cool. Yeah, for sure. Thank Take you. Care. Wash day. Bye.